that I am concerned because I think they're, you know, my, my fear is that we might go straight from crazy neoconservatism, John Bolton style, past what I'm talking to about to like, screw the world, let's, you know, let's, let's just focus up at, at home. And I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's going to be good for us as a country, politically, intellectually, etc. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Nate, Johnny, and Marla. Today, our guest is Elbridge Colby, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development at the Department of Defense and author of the new book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. We have a lot to talk about with Elbridge today, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we're glad you could take the time to join us to talk about foreign policy. Thanks for being here, Elbridge. Great. Good to be with you guys. Before we continue with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, where our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in this mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Elbridge, given your experience in, uh, you know, working in the foreign policy policy uh, ecosystem, could you start by telling us just a little bit about what you did at the Department of Defense and what your top concerns or interests were in foreign policy during this time period and today? Sure. Well, thanks, and and really good to be on with with ISI. I remember uh, actually uh, really benefiting from from ISI uh, in a lot of ways when I was in college and and afterwards, I think in law school as well. So, a really important. Uh, effort at, you know, giving some uh, support and uh, I guess the term now is space uh, to uh, to conservative leaning students in a, in a world in which um, it, it obviously no longer can be taken for granted. I remember uh, being in college and I thought I thought the uh, the the left was ascended then. But now I think it was pretty, you know, Bill Clinton looks like, uh, you know, he looks like Ronald Reagan compared to what we're seeing today. So um, a really, really important, uh, <clears throat> effort. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, um, in, in the Pentagon, I've been, I've served in the, in the government a, a few kind of in a few stints. Um, but it, most recently when I was there in uh, 2017, 2018 under the Trump administration, I, uh, was the lead official in the development of the, the 2018 national defense strategy, which is the, um, the primary, uh, uh, defense department overarching kind of strategic document. And, uh, and, you know, our, our real effort was to try to refocus the department and the military on um, great power competition, particularly China above all, in getting the, the military back focused on, you know, being able to win the nation's major wars in order to deter them after many, many years of focusing on counterterrorism, uh, counterinsurgency stuff in the Middle East, fighting kind of smaller States like uh, like like Iraq and and North Korea and so forth are being prepared to do so, and so that's that was that was our main effort. And you know, I think at least in the document, we were we made a lot of progress. I think, although the the implementation has not not been uh, as as um, uh, sort of comprehensive as certainly I would have hoped, but uh, that's that's reality. So, Elbridge, we, I think we want to get into obviously all of the the really topical issues surrounding um, Ukraine, but before we do. One thing that you've written a little bit about, you know, we're a podcast that's obviously interested in a lot of the internecine debates within conservatism about the future of the right and what the last five years, really, but particularly the last few months have exposed is these fault lines in the conservative movement in terms of one's view of foreign policy. Um, could you talk a little bit about sort of just give us a sense of the landscape of 
the different factions of conservative thought right now on foreign policy. Um, and then we'd love to hear just where you stand and why. Oh, I think this is a really important issue and uh, one where there's a lot of flux. You know, uh, how, how would I how would I characterize it? I mean, for for many years. Um, well, let me let me start out this way. Uh, you know, look, what what is conservatism to me? I mean, I think conservatism is basically a kind of a disposition more than a set of particular set of ideological principles. It's compatible with a number of different uh, approaches, um, you know, specific approaches or or religions or, or, you know, views. But, you know, in essence, it's basically the ideas that, you know, you're primarily responsible for those, you know, your family, your country, those are immediately around you to whom you're directly tied. It tends to sort of say, you know, it doesn't have to have what Michael Kinsley mocked as a conservative's treasured sense of futility. It doesn't mean you can't do anything, but it, yeah, you're suspicious of grand projects that seek to transform the world or fundamentally, uh, you know, undermine human or, or kind of go in the face of human nature, which is obviously happening in spades right now. Um, and, you know, I think is realistic about the world. I mean, in the sense that, you know, uh, the sort of Matt, James Madison's comment that if, you know, if we were all angels, we wouldn't need government, right? That, you know, it doesn't mean that you think that everybody's, you know, a, a demon, but it's sort of, you know, um, the idea that, um, that, uh, uh, you know, you, it's a tough world out there and it's competitive and people can be quite nasty and you got to account for that. So those are, to me, that's sort of naturally the natural conservative, you know, and that like self-interest is sort of a part of human nature. It's not necessarily lauded, but has to be accounted for. Um, in light of that, th- that that's the disposition also that I kind of take towards foreign policy. In light of that, the last generation, so someone my age, you guys are younger than I am and, I'm, and your listeners are as well, is very strange because, you know, I came of age politically in the 1990s and then I lived through the Bush administration. And that was a very bizarre time because in a sense, the con- quote unquote conservative foreign policy was actually not conservative in any way that I've just described. And it was almost its antithesis. It was actually aggressively liberal, or actually not liberal, progressive, I would say. I mean, liberal has some objective content, which is, you know, if you go back to Lord Acton or John Stuart Mill, right, it's like respect for free speech, these kinds of things. It's not necessarily what we're seeing these days. But, uh, you know, the the, the ascendancy of what's often called the neoconservatives, now different people are characterized neoconservative, but in the colloquial sense, Neoconservatism was defined by essentially subscription to the progressive aims, the sort of end of history aims, but just was more violent about it. That was that's kind of the main distinction, which is very strange because I was always I was always out of sorts with this. I, I remember I actually served in Iraq as a civilian. I mean, not not with any distinction, but I was there and I I was there in the early stages, you know, and this was under a Republican administration, and it was like they were going to transform the whole country. They were going to turn it all into like, you know. Brooklyn or whatever, you know, pick your, you know, Santa Monica, I don't know, whatever, um, Dallas. Um, and that was just very strange to me because I, I, you know, I, I'd gone to college in the, I graduated in 2002 and, you know, I was a conservative. I wrote for the conservative newspaper at, at Harvard and, uh, um, you know, so I was like, wait a minute, this isn't, this is something different. So, so this is, this is the, this is the still especially in the older and more the senior ranks of the 
quote unquote, at this point, traditional Republican Party. It's not really traditional. It's the, the, the quote unquote establishment. I hate that term, but but basically the people who still, you know, kind of harken back to that era, that's still the dominant mindset, which again, I find very strange. Now, my, you know, my point of view, I think there are other, there, there's, so, so if, if you have the neoconservatives who are kind of like, you know, you've got to project and a dominant form of essentially progressivism, usually throughout the world. Uh, and we have to use force to do so if necessary. And is only distinguished from like Tony Blinken often by the fact that it's just more prepared to use military force, which, by the way, I don't think is conservative. I mean, Lenin and Trotsky were much more violent than like Disraeli or, you know, pick your, I don't know, Lord Salisbury, you know, or Abraham Lincoln or pick your conservative, whatever. Or Edmund Burke. Or Edmund Burke, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Edmund Burke. Exactly. Um, and so, so okay, so that's one school. Then there's, then there's a, you know, if, if we're being simplistic, I would say the other extreme of the, of the conservative disposition which harkens back to much earlier in our history is this sort of, um, you know, I mean, people call it isolationist. I, I think that's a bit reductive. I don't like to use the term isolationist because I think it's usually used as a sort of an attack term. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's basically the idea that, you know, war is the health of the state. Uh, it's usually, uh, uh, you know, we want a smaller government, most of the problems abroad we can safely ignore. We're behind two oceans. You know, it's better than getting in a, um, in, a in a massive war. And and you know, especially over the last twenty years, I think this point of view has has landed some fair critiques. I tend to sympathize with a, a good number of the critiques of the ascendant, extremely hubristic, neoconservative, dominant strain. But I also disagree with that because I think if we go back to my description of conservatism, I think it's it's a tough world out there. Like, I mean, do we get rid of the police? Like, no, I mean, you got to have like, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm always like curious the reaction I'm going to get these days. Cause like 15 years ago, if you'd I use this analogy, nobody would care, but now it's like this controversial thing, you know, to me, the military and our, and our geopolitical interests are like police in a neighborhood. Like you want it to be safe. Then you can worry about your home and your school and investing in a business, but not until then, of course, you know, Lots of people are saying defund the police these days. So that, that, but not conservatives, right? Like so. So anyway, so that's my, and we can get into that if you want. The 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 kind of my critique of, and and you know, I mean, some people with whom I agree on a number of issues, like uh, the guys who wrote the New York Times piece. I, I disagree with them on a lot of things, but I also agree with them on some things. You know, about the country's moral decay. This is something that really concerns me. But I don't think the logical deduction from "Hey, we're having trouble at home" is like nothing else matters. That's, I, I just don't think that's rational. But just, I don't. So my view, I think my view is consistent with a, this kind of conservative disposition, which is, okay, it's not our job to get it. You know, I'm, and I, I actually think it's kind of a middle way. It's not our job to go in search of monsters to destroy. It's not our job to be the world's policeman. You know, as John Quincy Adams said 200 years ago, we're the well-wishers of liberty everywhere, but we're not its guarantors or, or something words to that effect. Um, so, but, you know, but the world is a, is a, is a, is a competitive and tough place and people are going to look to get, to get ahead and, and get their own interests. And if they're going to, you know, as Putin has demonstrating, if it means the use of force, if they think they can get away with it, they will, uh, or, or at least the most ruthless, ruthless will. And that's what matters because if you allow the most ruthless to get ahead, then you'll live in a world that's, that's very ruthless. And so what I'm trying to do, um, you know, in, in, in a number of ways and with my book, The Strategy of Denial is kind of a. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not only relevant to conservatives, but I think it's especially relevant to 
to fellow conservatives because it's sort of like, all right, well, how do we think about the world in this in this context? And and I look at it through this kind of, I would say, kind of classically realist, you know, and, and to me, realism and conservatism are sort of linked. They don't necessarily need to be go together. I mean, a lot of academic realists are not conservatives, but it kind of they jive, right? Because it's basically saying, look, the world is a pretty tough place and you got to take care. You got to look after yourself. Um, and you know, you can, you can, you know, spout morality like Tony Blinken or Joe Biden, but you know, at the end of the day, you got to deliver. These are kind of the basic ideas and that's sort of what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to do. And I think, I mean, one of the reasons I was so keen to talk to you guys is I think my sense is that the younger generation, and I mean, talking to people like Sagar and, and, and Marshall Kosloff and others that this is, this is my, the sense I get that actually younger, the younger generation and people out in the country outside of the, the blob, outside of the beltway are much more simpatico, I think with, with the, or, you know, much more sympathetic to the kind of arguments that I'm making. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of a lone voice for this stuff in, in Washington, which I, I, I just find, I just continue to be so shocked by it because what I'm saying seems to me to be pretty like banal. I don't know. Like I just, it seems like, I don't know. We should probably not be getting in multiple new wars. If we can avoid it, we should get the Europeans to do more. China's a big problem, but you know, like, but yet apparently what, you know, John Bolton decides to attack me in the wall street journal, which is a, a signal that I'm definitely right since he's been <laughs> like wrong about literally everything possible, <laughs> but, but that's sort of, but, but I talking to you guys, I think, but I, I'm also a bit concerned more than a bit concerned. I am concerned because I think there, you know, my, my fear is that we might go straight from crazy neoconservatism, John Bolton style past what I'm talking to about to like, screw the world. Let's, you know, let's, let's just focus up at, at home. And I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's going to be good for us as a country, politically, intellectually, et cetera. So to, to that point, <clears throat> you know, I've also been struck before at how much the modern neoconservative foreign policy project is a departure from what I traditionally understood conservatism to be. I mean, if you read George W. Bush's speeches, particularly during his second term about Iraq, it, it really is shockingly progressive. I mean, he has, it's, it's this sort of Hegelian language of liberty being the end of history and, you know, every person having a right to, I mean, it, it's, it's, it does, it, it sounds a lot more like Woodrow Wilson than it does like any sort of traditional conservative thinker. So I really do think conservative movement lost itself for a moment um, in terms of foreign policy. In the context of what's going on in Ukraine right now, you see a lot of finger pointing and noise, right? So there's, on the one hand, there's the argument that this is the, the sort of downfall of the neoconservative project with NATO expansionism um, and sort of nation building and trying to sort of project American power on everywhere, even in places where it doesn't make sense for it to exist. And then on the other side, you hear sort of the more hawkish end of the spectrum saying that this is the fault of the isolationists or the realists or the people who counseled restraint. They haven't had um, any power. So how can they well, be involved? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that was my question, right? It's like, yeah. my, I, it sounds like you are, you already have strong opinions on this debate, yeah. which I'm not surprised about, but what do you make of, of those sort of questions about Ukraine? Okay. Well, first, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I just remember being like sitting there in Iraq and, and I mean, I'm not, I was only there a few months, but like it, it, under the Bush administration, I was like, am I on drugs? Like this is, Bill Clinton was a conservative comparatively because at least he was sort of prudent. He was sort of like always triangulating. So it was like he, he was at least tactically prudent, which certainly did not define the, the George W. Bush's approach. Right. Um, 
And I mean, that that's a really interesting issue. And I mean, at a personal level, I think what happened, a lot of it is that there was obviously this sort of fusion at the, at the end of the Cold War. Well, I mean, it started with the whole Buckley thing, but like, you know, you had, um, you know, you know, you, I guess the conventional narrative is you had the social conservative, you know, the, the moral majority and, and, and that type. And then you had the, the business people, uh, or, you know, kind of cut taxes, the, the Milton Friedman types, and then you had this sort of national security types. And then within national security, you had the, um, the sort of liberal hawk kind of types like, um, you know, and then, and then the sort of more prudent realist type, um, uh, you know, and realism has never been deeply rooted as like a conscious idea in American political, but I mean, the disposition of like, obviously a Nixon, but also like an Eisenhower, it's very, that, that kind of thing, that, 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 that group. But then after the cold war, I think after the, I mean, we just got arrogant, we just got hubris and, and, you know, you can see it. Um, and people said, why, you know, it's, I mean, in a sense, it's a vindication of realism and conservatism, which is like, don't let anybody get too much power because they're bound to do something at minimum stupid and at maximum really bad. And at minimum, we did some really stupid things. I mean, we, we invaded Iraq and it was a catastrophe. We expanded the mission in Afghanistan. We let China, uh, you know, grow without holding them accountable, uh, and, and changing their economy to adapt as they, as they grew incredibly powerful. We collapsed the, our financial system, um, you know, we allow deindustrialization. So it's like, I mean, I think we're going to look back at that period and look at it as a catastrophe. I mean, these were preventable catastrophes. China was going to rise and so forth. And we couldn't, you know, you couldn't practically stop, uh, nine, uh, or maybe if not nine 11, you know, Al Qaeda from trying to get at us, but we could have avoided a lot of these things. So, um, so anyway, that, that's sort of, so it's in a sense, it's staggering that this attitude is still so powerful in the Republican party because it's so detached from reality. And now we're, now we're even farther down that path. You know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan and completely collapsed. Uh, for, and that's what we had to sort of show for at the end of the day. Um, China has risen and is like really here. And I, it is an immense, like sort of civilizational level challenge because of its size. And then the Ukraine thing's coming on. I mean, whose fault it is? I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of more like, I, there's plenty of blame to go around probably. And I mean, starting with Vladimir Putin, of course, but my sense here is, and again, this is kind of a, you know, I don't think that certainly I don't agree with the, the, you know, sort of imperialist, liberal imperialist kind of approach, which is like bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO right now. I mean, I've said that that's a bad idea. NATO should be a security alliance that's designed to defend itself and basically solve our collective problems, security problems. On the other hand, I don't like buy in or, or, or think that we would be best served. And again, I'm thinking about it. Like I think about it from an, in my view, a sort of a conservative point of view, which is like, what's in the interest of the American people and my, and the, you know, it's like maybe Vladimir Putin has some complaints. Well, that's his problem. You know, like we need to, we need to reckon with them as a political reality, but it's like, it's not my, it shouldn't be as, as thinking about American strategy. It's not my job to be like, well, what's fair to Vladimir Putin. You know, that's not what I'm, I'm concerned about other than instrumentally, basically. What I'm concerned about is what's best for the American people. And what's best for the American people is that we avoid a major war with the Russians while you know, certainly denying Russia or anybody else a dominant position over Europe and you know, really a, a, a descent into chaos or, or con a larger conflict uh, within Europe, the, these kinds of things. And so 
that's where I think um, I think we can do that right now. And my my view is we can combine that. And, and this is while prioritizing Asia. This is a combination of making it, making it clear and and, and direct to, to to Putin and the Kremlin that they are not going to benefit from this aggression. They're not going to be able to quickly ingest Ukraine and then kind of reset and move onward, that they're going to suffer and it's going to be difficult for them to do that. Support the Ukrainians uh, with you know weapons and other things that, that as much as we can. Um, and then get the Europeans to step up, which again is like a classic, you know, the neocons love to talk about like how America can do everything. And it's like, wait a minute, how's that in America's interest? We're all spending over 3% of our income every year. And like, I get why people in the in the Bellway benefit because people abroad treat you very important if you're an American expert. People really like ooh, the Americans, right? And no, it's great. It's good for your. It's great for vanity. But like, is that our job? <laughs> Isn't our job to be what's in the American people's interest? And the American people's interest is like those Germans need to start spending a lot more money yesterday. And if somebody's not being nice to the Germans, they're not looking after the American people's interest. They're looking after their interest in their relationship with Germany. And that I think is, you know, I think it's unconscionable actually, but, um, what, well, what the Germans are doing is unconscionable, but anyway, that's, that's, I think, but I think the, you know, and my, my, my partner and good friend, uh, uh, Wes Mitchell, I think is very good on this point that actually it's, there's a conservative mindset also, which says you find yourself in a situation. Our point here is our, our purpose here should not be to prove an intellectual or theoretical point to say that, you know, the, 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 the realists were always right. We overdid it with NATO. That's not our, that's not the point here. The point here is to do what's best for the American people over the, over the, over the longer term. And that involves some kind of equilibrium where we hold the NATO line and so forth. We, but, but also kind of are able to put the Russians in a box, if you will. Elbridge, I'm, I'm curious kind of both with this specific situation and zooming out a bit, you know, you see the kind of, there's a little bit of a whiplash, not only among conservatives, but on, in the media generally. So if you watch Fox News in the morning, for example. <laughs> it's fascinating, it's right? Across the day, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's as hawkish as can be, right? All the old, you know, retired generals <laughs> who led us to disaster in Iraq and Afghanistan are brought back. And then in the evening, it's like, you know, totally different world. And so, you know, you've talked about kind of avoiding both of these extremes you know, now we have the context where it does seem like this unipolar kind of moment is unraveling. There's kind of a resetting, maybe, you know, breaking into spheres of influence. Um, I'm just curious, like the world, according to Elbridge Colby, like if you were calling the shots, what is the application of American power look like throughout the world, specifically post whatever Putin does in Ukraine? Let's say he puts in his puppet regime what is what does your world look like if you're well i have a book for you on that topic it's called the strategy of denial american defense in, the, in an age of great power conflict which goes in I, I you guys you know your your listeners are in college or graduate school so presumably they have some time hopefully it's on their their syllabus is any syllabi anyway but uh but i go into it in great length in that i mean look i think basically you know china's the biggest threat and and um uh, and, and China's dominance of Asia is the thing we want to avoid because that alone would allow them to agglomerate more than half of global GDP. And all, the, even though even the New York Times is admitting that now that that this is going to impose a real, I mean, more than a burden, like a, a fundamental threat to our liberty, not to mention our prosperity, because they're going to have you know, everybody's works for somebody, right? They're going to have the ability to lock down. They've already shown that they will. So that's got to be our interest. So our priority, and in military terms, but also in 
economic cap or political capital. I mean, how we use sanctions. They need to be oriented around denying China the ability to establish hegemony over Asia. And the and the the key point right now is Taiwan. We need to be able to defend Taiwan, not for its own sake, but for um, but for our sake, uh, in a way that 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 isn't too costly and risky, because then it would like exceed our rational pain threshold. Um, we still we do have interests in other theaters, but they are secondary. So we need to act as if they are secondary. So Europe is the second theater. It's a declining fraction of global GDP. And by the way, there's no Russia is a fraction of China's power, and the other European states to which we're allied are much more powerful than Russia in aggregate. So they could actually, if they wanted to, if they got off their duffs like Germany had uh, during the Cold War, they could actually do a lot of that. So that's what we need to do. So, so my solution is not to like abandon Europe. And this is this canard that like the Boltons of the world will toss at someone like me. It's like, no, I'm not saying we abandon it. I'm saying we have a different approach. We have like a, a, a my, and then similarly in the Middle East, you know, you build on things like the Abraham Accords. We shouldn't get in these dumb wars like uh, Iraq uh, and waste our power and, and, and people's uh, goodwill um, on, uh, on, these, uh, on, these, on these conflicts. Um, but, you know, but we shouldn't just skedaddle. But there are ways we can do that. We can support the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emirates, others that don't want to live under the Iranian thumb. Okay, good. Yeah. And then in South Asia, we got to have Afghanistan in a catastrophic way, which we had a right to expect better. But I think it was the right decision. Well, back India. You know, and then we'll, so, and that's a basically, to me, that's like, okay, well, we've got limited resources in the context of the problems we face. It's not rational to, you know, it's so interesting. You know, I always, one of the things I said after that is like, don't listen to the rhetoric that people use. Look at what the costs are going to be and who's bearing them. So when people are like, we need to stand up everywhere. It's like, are they credibly calling for ways that the American people are going to double or triple the defense budget? Because if they're not, then they're just, then they're just flapping their gums. That's not, that's not like what's really going on. And I just, you know, it's funny you mentioned about Fox News. It's so interesting to watch. I mean, I, I, I equate, so, you know, I uh, have friends on the other side of the aisle and I went to school with a lot of them and so forth. And I equate, particularly the Biden administration is like uh, Mandarin systems in 19th century China. It's like the late stage decay of these, of this kind of intellectual system, but it's extremely hierarchical and they all are very deferential. So it's like a, from a sociological point of view, it's very conservative. It's very traditional and they're very incremental. And, and you can see that in, I think the way their policy works, it's very lowest common denominator, very gradual, you know, meanwhile, the conservative side is I equate the conservative foreign policy debate. And I think it's true on the domestic side as well is more like tombstone. Like there's, you know, roving bands of cowboys running around, like having shootouts with each other. But it's a really interesting time to be a conservative in the foreign policy field, but also in places like economic policy, where people like, you know, Orrin Cass and Julius Krein, American Compass, American, I mean, the breaking orthodoxy. Do, do I agree with them on everything? Probably no, but like, that's not the point, right? We're a coalition and people are going to make they're going to make arguments that maybe in ten, five years they're going to say ah, that wasn't quite right. But it's a much more plastic and dynamic intellectual political environment. And again, I think more, the more input we can have from younger generation, the better, because it's the, the, the brain deads, you know, who are like fixated on 1999 and the sort of neoconservative ascendancy doing real damage. And Fox is fascinating to watch. And even during the day, you see different. And, and you see even people who are like the, 
you know, I, I won't name, but like some of the afternoon I've noticed, cause I've been watching a lot of TV recently with all the Ukraine stuff. Some of the, some of the hosts will like test out something, you know, like, uh, is that going to make sense? Like, do we really need to do that after the 20 years in the Middle East? And you're like, wow, I would not have heard that on Fox 10 years ago. And then of course, in the evening, you've got Tucker, Hannity, Ingram, you know, and then, but then you've got like the, the more traditional quote unquote establishment types during the day. But I think what we're seeing is, and I was talking to a reporter about this yesterday, what you're seeing across the day is that debate. And, you know, I mean, take, I was going to put something on this on Twitter, like Jack Keane. Okay, Jack Keane, you know, former vice chief of staff, the army, big voice for the kind of traditional approach. But I was watching Jack Keane about the Ukraine thing. And he's like, these guys are really serious. And he's like, we don't have a military that can fight them and the Chinese at the same time. And it's like, well, that's, that's some truth right there. That's some reality. This is somebody who understands the reality. Then you can have a conversation about what to do. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting time, but I just, I, I really hope, I think what, what, I think what I'm saying is the natural equilibrium for the conservative movement to orient around. Uh, but you know, we'll see. On the note of the new conservative ascendancy that you mentioned previously, I'm curious what you think about, I've definitely sensed a lot of people feel disaffected and this is just my observation of the general public and also of people who are more critical of U.S. intervention abroad, whether that's Iran and Iran in in Russia and Ukraine, where have you. How do you think the excesses of the post 9-11 period have influenced how conservatives approach foreign policy today? Because even on the, I mean, I've seen some uh, dovishness on the China side as well, even though there are criticisms in other spheres of, you know, of China's, um, you know, general hegemony or um, how there is clearly this, we recognize that it's a threat, but it does seem like there's this absolutism that has pervaded in a sense. I don't know if you get that same sense. So I'm interested in seeing what you kind of think about those post 9-11 excesses and how maybe they're influencing and maybe not a great way, but also is creating this the skepticism that is that may also be healthy. No, I think you put your finger on it. It's great. I mean, I think a lot of people feel really burned by Iraq and, you know, I mean, some of the things like Bolton would have advocated, we didn't even do, but would we leave us, we'd be even more disastrous position, like starting a war with Iran, for instance, you know? So like, we're, we're, we're sort of fortunate we didn't, it's, we're not even worse given what some of these people were advocating. But yeah, I mean, I, and, and at a personal level, I mean, I, there's a, fr- a friend of mine who, you know, is, is sort of my age, but he, he's like, you know, oh, yeah, I remember back in 2003, like, we just want to, th- those were our team. That was our co- part of the coalition that was responsible for foreign policy. So we, we agreed. So we went along with them. And now it's like, wait, they complete, not only did they screw up the foreign policy thing, but they've created enormous backlash against, you know, other parts of this coalition. And I think a lot of people, even some some of the most more vocal kind of, again, I don't like this term, but isolationist or whatever, restrainer types themselves were advocates for a harder line and now feel disillusioned and kind of feel like, hey, I, I really, you know, I'm almost like an atonement element um, and uh, or, or you're kind of a balance. And, and that's what I'm trying. And that's why I, I, I when when I speak to especially audiences like this, I, I really I, I recoil against the term hawk and. You know, Ross Douthat was an old friend of mine from, from college, and Ross wrote a piece in the New York Times, and I was very happy he did because he he made the point that I was against the Iraq War at the time. He, we were like roommates the, well, around that period, and you know we we knew each other very well, and that's like 
that's not to say that I'm infallible to the contrary, as my, my wife and kids will tell you, but like, it's more just to say, my view is not like, it's not like I've been just looking for another opponent, you know? I mean, the only war in my adult lifetime that I have, new war that I've supported is the original mission in Afghanistan uh, against Al-Qaeda, which of course I still think was the right call, but then we should have taken a much lighter footprint after that. Um, and, you know, cut some kind of a deal, uh, but not this sort of whole nation building thing. I was against the Iraq war. I was against the Libya intervention. I've been against the Syria stuff. Um, so it's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm against putting U S forces into Ukraine. Um, I mean, certainly like, you know, combat forces. I mean, if there's some ninja stuff that we can do that, that's a different story, but, but, um, but that's sort of, that's, I think it's important because I think of what you're, what you're pointing to, which is people are like, ah, these people are all just warmongers. They all get money from Raytheon or, you know, Lockheed or whatever. And, um, and there is a lot, of <laughs> not so much the defense industry thing. I tend to think that's exaggerated, but more that like, there's a group of people who just want to find, like, I, you know, I mean, I normally I'm of the view that politics is about addition, not subtraction. But I remember like a year or two ago, Robert Kagan wrote something about how we need to you know, defend Taiwan. I was like, hey, you know, I was like on Twitter, I was like, this guy is a big part of why we're in this situation. And, and we need to actually differentiate ourselves from this kind of view. Those of us who are arguing for this, because, you know, he would have us triple the defense budget and get wars all over the place, you know, and that's not what this is about. Um so, you know, I mean, I think, look, uh, fundamentally, I make an, uh, make an intellectual argument or not intellectual political policy argument, which is if China takes over base. So, so it's like I actually think it's a very kind of new conservative argument. Right. Because if you're a Robert Zellick type, if you think that money just flows across borders and that's how it's going to be, you wouldn't be worried about China taking over Asia because we'll be able to trade with them. But if you're somebody who, like I think people on the new right do, understand that politics and economics are inseparable, then you understand that the Chinese are definitely going to reshape the world economy in their favor if they, and that's why they're doing this, and that they're going to use that influence. And that's, I mean, it's exactly like if we're afraid of the, and justifiably afraid of the left canceling us and, you know, using social media to, to discriminate against us and so forth, well, at, like, at least we have the possibility of electing a majority that we like and and changing things. But if the Chinese are in control, then forget it. Like we don't have that ability. And that's the thing that I'm um and you know I don't I don't trumpet the ideological thing much for a variety of reasons, but like they're not <laughs> Burkeans, you know, they're really not. They're they're avowedly Maoists, you know, I mean not like cultural revolution necessarily, but that's their intellectual heritage. So I don't think, to me, it, it, that just means like we shouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt about what they'll be like when they're in control. Maybe this is poking the bear a little bit, but on, on that last point, I mean, what do you make of the argument that you've heard from certain sort of uh, high profile members of the new right about more or less China being Burkean, right? I, I mean, I don't know if, if I've actually heard that. Yeah, it's interesting. Specific term yeah, yeah. Burkean, but it's seen the argument that they are sort of a traditionalist nation state that's getting back in touch with their sort of ancient traditions and that therefore they should be, I think the language from the New York times op-ed was respected as civilizational equals. Well, I certainly agree that China should be respected as a civilization. Sure. It's worth equal. differentiating, I guess, from yeah. respecting them as civilizational equals and seeing them as an aspirational model 
that we should try to move the United States further, further towards. Yeah. I just, I don't think that comports with reality. I mean, I think there are particular things that the Chinese might have done on, you know, industrial development or currency or whatever that we can learn from. Certainly their military buildup has been impressive. Um, but the notion that there's some kind of national conservative is like belied by the fact that they're avowedly communist. And I mean, like, for instance, they've had enforced abortions for the last couple of generations. And within living memory, they embarked on a cancellation project that makes ours pale in comparison. And they, uh, you know, I mean, the industrial, uh, the, the Great Leap Forward uh, killed like tens and tens of millions of people. And, you know, yeah, that was a while ago, kind of. I mean, it was in the living memory of my parents. I mean, they, they, they were alive at that time. And like the guy who's running the show right now is his father was, you know, a, 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 like one of the red, you know, sort of heroes. Heroes is probably a little strong, but like that's what he regards as the legacy, you know. And the way the Chinese talk about it is Mao Zedong got uh, two thirds right, one third wrong. It's like, well, it's like a big, big one third. So, like, I don't, you know, I mean, this is not Lee Kuan Yew. And I mean, you know, I have issues with, with Lee Kuan Yew on here and there, but I think you can have tremendous respect for what Singapore has been able to accomplish or some of the other, um, you know, I mean, Lee Kuan Yew always described himself as a social Democrat, but you could make arguments that are more sim similar there, but th those are governments that always had a strong sense of limits, you know, that, that is, I think, core to any kind of conservative idea doesn't mean, you know, you can't touch the economy, of course, to the contrary. I mean, that part, I mean, I think we could probably learn a lot from, uh, you know, the Asian tigers uh, in terms of our economic model. I mean, that's Michael Lynn's point. And actually that more than that, we could learn from our own history before, say, about 1970, I mean, 1979, that um, uh, on that topic. But yeah, it's an interesting, it's, it, it's actually kind of befuddling because it's like, and, and the other thing is, I mean, most of the people who really look at what the Chinese are saying emphasize that they are much more Marxist than most people give them credit for. Again, I don't actually, I don't actually play that up a lot, but like they're historical materialists. Like, I mean, I don't, you know, you don't have to be obviously religious to be conservative, but like, you know, I am. And I don't think that any, I don't want to be under a government that's like, actually materialistic and looks at people through essentially consequentialist eyes, solely consequentialist eyes. And I think that's, <laughs> they don't hide it. Elbridge, uh, I think we have time for about two more questions. I want to do one more on foreign policy before we pivot to a final question on conservatism. So one area that, I mean, I think there's a lot of people on the right, even broadly, that would agree with you. But I think one area where you've gotten some pushback is tactically speaking, like, are we even capable of defending Taiwan? Like, what would that look like? So if you could address that, and then also maybe comment briefly on, you know, there's soft power, there's hard power. In terms of economics, you know, there's a lot of ways that we could maybe push for a more strategic decoupling. But it seems as though a lot of elite financial interest runs counter to that. And so maybe if you could comment on both those two things, I'd be interested. On Taiwan, it's hard, but it's doable. I mean, it's very difficult to launch and sustain an amphibious operation, uh, an air assault operation against, I mean, actually the Russians were just having difficulties with an air assault operation, it looks like in, in Ukraine, where they have you know significant local dominance and they don't, they're not separated by a large body of water. 
but it is it is feasible. We just need to we just need to do it, and we're, and we're not, and that just I mean we're we're too slow and and not doing it enough. But um, you know, there are people out there. I mean, who f- some people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, I mean, military analysis, and I am not uh, a true expert on military analysis, but I know a lot of them. Uh, and I know the people who are most credible. Um, and the way they describe it is a very difficult problem that is tractable. If we buy the right things and we're properly postured and we're, we've trained correctly and our, uh, the Taiwanese and the Japanese are doing the right thing, it is feasible. Um, a lot of it is about having the right munitions, uh, you know, the, the right submarines and aircraft ready. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm so worried about these deployments to Europe is because it's not like those ground forces are, are, are that big of a deal. But, you know, you're, no president is realistically going to deploy those ground forces into combat without air and other forms of space, these kinds of su- forms of support. And those are, are scarce, unfortunately. Uh, like, basically, we have a, a much bigger army than we realistically probably need. And we have a smaller air force in particular, as well as Navy, than we need. That's what we've decided to have. That you can't change that over a kind of year on year. We we could, I hope we can change it over like a decade plus. But um, but yeah, that that that's that's the thing. And you know, look, the proof is in the pudding. This is Mao Zedong was planning to invade Taiwan in nineteen forty nine, uh, nineteen fifty, and then when the Korean War broke out, uh, Truman uh, stuck the Seventh Fleet in there. And the reason they haven't tried is not because they didn't want it. The reason they haven't tried is because they couldn't do it. So they're getting, you know, the, 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 it's kind of, there's a tendency to be like, oh, it's totally undoable or, ah, you know, Bridge is exaggerating. It's, it's in the middle. We're in, a, we're in a situation where it's a close cut issue. And that's very dangerous because they could decide that they want to do it and they could, they could get away with it. And, you know, my, part of my urgency on it is like, why are we even getting close? Like, why, would, why are we even leaving any doubt? I would want to like flood the zone so they'd have no doubt in their mind that they're going to get smoked if they try to cross the strait. And then we don't need to poke them in the eye. We don't need to embarrass them about it, but they will understand that they would fail. Second point on the, uh, this is really interesting. My, my colleague, uh, Robert Delfeld is, is a brilliant guy has been thinking a lot about this, you know, the sort of, um, I guess you could say class would be one or the sort of interest group basis for a conservative model. I mean, I think, um, you know, probably fi- the financial industry, it's going to depend, it's a little bit more disaggregated. I mean, clearly the Democrats now are representing the elite. I mean, they're, they don't like to admit it, but it's obvious that they're in a lot of respects, they're, they're the sort of knowledge elite and the kind of globalist, you know, and so elements of capital that are, and again, I'm not as sophisticated on this, but like elements of capital that, that are more tied to that, maybe like investment banks or something might be more, Incline them, but I do think there there are there are elements of you know um, you can make it in the interest. I, I, I guess the point is I don't think conservatives should regard like the financial services industry as writ large hostile territory because there are a there are people who are just going to agree with us anyway on principle, and b I think there are structural probably structural interests in like especially as the kind of decoupling that you suggested happens as it becomes more difficult to invest in. Uh, directly in China, there's more risk and so forth. There are going to be other opportunities. So I think it, it's going to take a more refined analysis than I can provide. 
obviously people with an interest in reshoring, uh, nearshoring, you know, industrial, you know, re- revivifying our industrial base. Those are going to be areas that I think are going to be naturally sympathetic to kind of, I think what it sounds like we're all, you know, supportive of. Um, but, you know, and then, I mean, if you look at the political um, fundraising, it suggests there's, you know, a lot of average people are, are willing to support it. One thing I would say <clears throat> on the foreign policy side about this is one of the reasons I think our foreign policy elite is so bad is that the um, the founders create a system where foreign policy is really controlled largely by the presidency, the president. So it's an elite enterprise already. And then, and then the, 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 the support for it, it's very concentrated in Washington. And then that's like where people who are interested in the foreign policy, in this kind of more globalist idea, it, there's a lot more support for it. Whereas like people who are more interested in, in the kinds of things that we're talking about here. They might give like a hey, education reform in my state or, you know, and so there isn't as much, and that, you know, given, okay, that means there are fewer people submitting op-eds to the Wall Street Journal or National Review or the Federalist or whatever, who have more of this kind of view. So that's something like structurally where, I mean, I'm, that's special pleading because it would benefit me, but, but I mean, just, I, I think, you know, one of my views is like, people sometimes are like, well, you're in this like anti-elitist group. And I was like, well, I'm not anti-elite. There's always an elite. There was an elite in like the Khmer Rouge had an elite you know, but we just want a better elite, <laughs> you know, and we got to be, we should be intentional about how we, how we could develop that. That's going to be better for the nation, for everybody, whether they're elite or not. Elbridge, uh, just to th- wrap things up, we want to ask you one question we ask all of our guests, and I know you touched on this at the beginning, but if you could put a finer point on it, uh, what do you think conservatism is? I think conservatism is basically the idea that your your priorities should be the things that are closest and kind of natural to you or like that that are closest to you i mean obviously natural as well like like the family uh your friendships your country obviously you can change your country you can change your family you know i mean but like there are sort of high bars to that but that's sort of and that like that's and it's not bad to to favor your own family, country, community over others. Doesn't you know? I think an enlightened conservatism says I'm not just going to like Vladimir Putin style hurt other people <laughs> to kind of get our benefit. You look for positive some things, but that's the sort of the value aspect of conservatism. And then the um, the uh, and then the sort of heuristic or 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 viewpoint is one that's sort of more, um, uh, like, um, skeptical now or sort of, um, a little more cautious conservative in the sense, like you actually are, Hey, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about a conservative risk profile, if you're investing, you don't throw it all on like, you know, uh, you know, the roulette table. Um, that's sort of, so, so those, those are the two. And I, and so, so to me, like, I don't, conservatism doesn't, define my views, you know, I'm a Christian, right? Like I'm a realist, you know, I, there, I, I think of myself as a liberal in certain respects, you know, a conservative liberal. So, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud to wear the, the, the moniker of conservative, but it's not, it's not a total identity. And I think that's actually part of being a conservative is actually, it's not a total identity, you know, unlike say Marxism or something like that. It's, it's a, you know, and that's why, um, 
you know, and one of the features of the rhetoric of the last few years is like, you know, we all have sort of divided identities. That's part of being an American, right? That's part of like, but that's okay because you're not being a conservative to say like politics is not going to solve all of your problems, but it is really important to get it, to get it right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elbridge. Um, if people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Sure. Well, our, our website is uh, www.themarathoninitiative.org. You can find all my, my work and media appearances there. And then if you, uh, on Twitter at, uh, at Elbridge Colby. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Thank you.